Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast. Today on the pod, how long before Vancouver gets rid of its 25-cent cup fee? We look into the double-double of City Hall overreach. Plus, underwater, a major Vancouver developer seeks creditor protection as high debt and ever-increasing interest rates take their toll. Is the great real estate shakeout upon us? Plus, new information shows China's spy balloon targeting more than 40 countries, including Canada. We look into the Middle Kingdom's new espionage tactics. That's all next on the Jazz Joha Show podcast. First, let's look at Vancouver's single-use beverage cup fee. Our next guest is bringing forward a motion on February 14th, asking council to repeal the 25-cent fee, which began in January of 2022. Joining us now is Rebecca Bly, who, as I said, will be introducing that motion. Rebecca, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for inviting me, Jeff. Uh, Let's walk through this first and foremost. Why the desire as a city council uh, to uh, get rid of this particular uh, policy? Well, you know, and I've actually listened to your show, Jazz, many, many times to hear the public sentiment and feedback around this fee. So it's not a secret that this fee has been unpopular um, with um, consumers, uh, first and foremost. Um, and and also um, businesses, smaller businesses have really struggled with frontline service workers, uh, food and beverage service workers, having to sort of do the explaining and 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 um an outlining of why this fee has been added to people's bills so um ultimately what we uh, understand through engagement engagement with stakeholders is that the fee is just simply not changing consumer behavior and um and uh not reducing waste so we need to focus on policies that are actually going to have an effective impact on reducing single-use waste now this motion that you're introducing would would eliminate the 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 twenty five cent fee. Is there any desire by this ABC majority council to come back with a another policy that would look at single use uh, cups? We don't have um, um, we, we not at this time. I think what we need to be doing is working with um, organizations that are currently. Um, uh, working on programs like Return It and Recycle BC to uh, consider perhaps producer responsibility and um, and um, return it type fees so that uh, similar to a pop can or something like that, because these cups are in fact recyclable. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. They can go in paper recycling um, in your condo building recycling room or at home in your um, paper recycling bin. So they are recyclable. We just need to do a better job at... Um, and making sure that the uh, single-use cups don't get to the landfill and are dealt with um, in a sustainable way. Um, the fee itself, now uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, the city does not have the power to obviously implement sales tax. So the fee that you pay, that $0.25, cent, goes to the business. The be- business keeps that. Uh, I'm just curious, do you know any, have any sense of how much money uh, taxpayers or people buying uh, products like coffees have put in uh, into in the, I guess, the broader system uh, in regards to the 25 cup fee? You know how much has been paid out? Well, we actually don't. And that's a significant issue with this cup fee is that there is no mechanism for reporting back to the city uh, in terms of businesses um, tabulating what they've collected in fees. The intent of the bylaw was that they would spend the money, the revenue on, um, you know, some sort of reusable cup 
program or something. Um, but that's, you know, where, where some businesses have. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of businesses that fall under the single cut bylaw um, that we have just not seen that uptake of, um, of action by the businesses. So ultimately that revenue, we have no idea. But look, McDonald's, Starbucks, Tim Hortons, just these major national chains that mm-hmm. are operating in our city that are likely paying an ex- or charging an extra 25 cents on every order because people can't reasonably bring their own cup to those types of establishments, particularly drive through things like that. It's got to be in the millions at the end of the day. And so no- I have heard anecdotally from somebody who orders through an app and picks up in the drive through that that person has spent well over um, $250 in fees last year, one person alone, anecdotal. Wow. Uh, now, part of your um, the the old policy was not only just a twenty five cent fee for disposable cups, but there was a fifteen cent for paper bags as well. Does that stay as well, or is this part of your motion? This this motion is tackling the fee. The fee is by far the most contentious part of this initiative of this policy move. Um, the federal government has brought in legislation to. Um, to ban plastic bags, we know, and and is working on um, that particular piece of policy. So, you know, we've heard from folks that the the bag fee um, has an impact. We recognize that, but people find they're more easily able to bring a reusable bag than they are a cup. And so the cup cup fee feels particularly punitive Mm -hmm. because so many situations there is no alternative other than just paying the fee. So just to confirm, in Vancouver, the goal is to get rid of that 25-cent fee for disposable cups, but the 15 cents you pay for paper bags will stay. That's correct. Uh, do you think during the last election, this is part of the reason why ABC got elected? I'm very curious because there would, some would argue, look, cities have a role to play when it comes to behavior, whether it be climate change, whether it be uh, waste like disposable cups. Others have said municipalities need to stick to their core business. You know, uh, And I'm oversimplifying here. And I'll be the first to admit that. But worry about community centers and parks uh, and potholes and garbage pickups. Stick to the basics of what uh, City Hall should be doing. Uh, do you think there, the cup fee is one of the one of the major issues that got you elected, and does it still drive your coalition right now in regards to sticking with the basics? Well, there's a couple things. So I moved to repealing motions, pretty much the same as the one I've moved this time. This time last year, and it failed six five. So I'm I'm back at it to try and uh, repeal the C again for the same reasons. Um, so so there's that piece. I think that what Vancouverites residents are looking for is pragmatic, common sense decision making that's evidence based, not ideologically based. So um, that's why I think that this is um, has broad support. People are hearing about it in the news. I'm getting uh, multiple emails every day saying, yes, please get rid of this fee. It doesn't make sense. And even people who are climate aware, more climate aware, let's say, and they bring their own cups, they still say this fee doesn't make sense. So I think ultimately what the city, what residents are really looking for, what we saw in the last election, is that they can count on uh, evidence-based decision-making that's going to have the greatest impact in whatever we're looking to achieve while not worsening the affordability crisis in our city is, is one aspect of what we heard from residents in terms of what they struggle with day-to-day living in the city. So ABC certainly ran on on many different um, points in in our platform to bring that very um, that very 
uh, aspect to back to city council, which is evidence-based, data-driven, pragmatic decisions, and let go of sort of the ideological swings on either end of the spectrum. So you introduced this legislation or uh, this motion next week. Uh, When can we see it implemented? Uh, Yes, so great question. So we're going to be working with staff and members of the business community to ensure that the fee uh, is removed in a manner, of course, that's efficient and effective. That said, we can pass the motion next week and staff will need to go and do the bylaw, the work on the actual bylaw and have that come back to council to enact um, the actual repealing of the fee. We hope to have it all squared away by June 1st at the latest. June 1st. Well, there you go. Uh, Councillor Bly, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Jess. Well, next week isn't just about Vancouver City Hall, by the way. They know they're looking at, of course, a single-use cup fee. Next week, Vancouver Park Board uh, is considering uh, recommendations from staff to modify the Stanley Park Drive as part of a plan to restore the uh, pre-COVID traffic and parking configurations. Now, you remember um, in 2021, the separated bike lane was uh, installed. Uh, It is still there. The creation of the lane, which of course circles the park, is basically a two-lane, which is two lanes, the Stanley Park Drive. It's essentially resulted in loss of one lane of traffic for vehicles. Uh, You know, some have said, opponents have said it's reduced accessibility for seniors and people as well. Last month, ABC Vancouver dominated Park Board, partially reversed its decision on removing the Stanley Park bike lane and and voted to keep some of it um, uh, intact. Uh, Joining me now to talk about the uh, Stanley Park and, of course, uh, the removal of the bike lane is Bonnie McKenzie. She's a spokesperson for an organization called Stanley Park for All. Bonnie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So walk me through here. Uh, Your organization obviously wants the configuration in Stanley Park to go back to the pre-2021 configuration before they installed the lane. What is your frustration with this present park board, this new park board? Well, to say that we're disappointed is probably an understatement. The ABC party campaigned on removing the bike lane removing all of the bike lane and putting it back to pre-COVID configuration for both traffic and parking. Um, They have not done that. They have been faced with all types of issues um, that have been raised by the staff on trying to do that. However, they did promise the electorate, and then Scott Jensen himself came out on CKNW on October the 17th and reiterated their stand that their first priority was to get rid of that bike lane. And as you said in your opening comments, part they have dismantled part of it, but part of it is still there. What we would like to see is them to keep their promise, honor their word, mm-hmm. and remove the whole bike lane. Put it back to the way that it was, which would then eliminate all of the issues that they're trying to solve with some of the options that they're coming up with now, issues that they created by the installation of the bike lane lane in the first place. And then once it's back, then take the time to look at what you need to do for the future. You're not philosophically against bike lane in Stanley Park, though. Beyond just going back to the previous configuration, you still support a bike lane. Oh, yes, yes. The previous configuration actually still had bikes on the seawall, And it had cyclists uh, sharing the road with traffic. 
And to my knowledge, there was never an issue with that. It seemed to have worked fine. So, no, I'm all for cycling for those that um, are able and willing to do it. And I would like to see a capability for them to be able to do it in the park. However, I don't feel that what they've done to date is Mm -hmm. what the solution should be. It has created way more problems than it was meant to solve. And um, I would, at this point in time, the cyclist could still, if you put it back, they could still share the road with the motorist, and they still have access to the seawall. Well, so it's not like they're not cycling the park. Now, this, uh, to my understanding, the park board staff uh, have told the park board itself that the total cost is about $425,000 to remove uh, the present uh, configuration that could take until April. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, look, when you're running for office is one thing, but there are realities when it comes to governing. Uh, you were saying move it back to the the older configuration. I'm going to assume cyclists would say, well, that configuration was never very good. That's why this present configuration that you're not uh, supportive of was brought in. Is there any compromise until a real bike lane can be installed? And I don't know how long that could take. Take a year? Could take two years? I don't know. But is there not a need for some sort of compromise for these cyclists? Because these cyclists would tell you they don't want to be just sharing um, space with pedestrians. They don't want to be sharing space with other vehicles as well. That there needs to be some compromise on the part of those who say, no, just the ba- back to the old configuration. Because the assumption there is that that worked. And I think cyclists would say that doesn't work for us. It never has. Well, if it didn't work for them before, I'm um, it, that was not very evident to most people because I, it never was raised to us as an issue. I think once they got their dedicated bike lane, yes, they thought that it was an improvement. And um, I think compromise is important if you can do it. And I think that when the park board look at this, there are options that I think that they need to be able to consider. The problem is, is that in maybe saying it didn't work for the cyclists, well, what they put in didn't work for people with disabilities. It didn't work for seniors. It didn't work for the pedestrians. It didn't work for families. It didn't work for tourists. Okay, so you satisfied one group of people, and you managed to deny access or limit access. I won't say deny, limit curtail access for a whole group of people by by doing what you're doing. So I really think that you need to take a sober second thought and, and look at this. And maybe looking at where you you need to be able to improve what you've got, if there are improvements that can be made that still allow the traffic flow and still allow access, then certainly let's look at getting that in there. But um, to just say that, okay, one group of people were like it the way it is, and we have a whole bunch of disadvantaged other groups of people, that, that's not a level playing field, and to us it's not acceptable. We want the park accessible by all. And if, if the ABC Vancouver-dominated park board were to come in next week and say, we're going to keep part of the, 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 the old uh, configuration in regards to the bike lane, you view, view that as them failing uh, in regards to their promise to you and to the citizens of Vancouver. Like, whatever I'm coming from is, you know, being a candidate is one thing. Governing is another thing where you do have to find compromise. Is there compromise, any compromise right now in your mind in regards to that park and uh, allowing motorists and cyclists uh, to, to coexist? Well, 
I think that there is room for compromise, and if they could position it in such a way that what they're saying and what they're doing is accurate and honest, and that they actually have thought through all the repercussions and done consultations on what that will mean, then I would certainly be all for it. Um, I feel that what the information that's out there, a lot of it is misleading. Um, it's, it's not quite accurate. And I, I feel that decisions are being made sort of on uninformed or incorrect information. And I would like to see that if they are going to compromise, and I think that that's a, a worthy goal to try to achieve, Mm-hmm. then they have to be upfront and say, okay, we can't live up to our promise because this is the reason why, and this is what we're looking at doing instead. These are going to be the impacts, and, and honestly, state what those impacts are, because I don't think you can go back and have a compromise where there isn't going to be some impact somewhere. Right. And and make it clear that, yes, we're doing this, but these are going to be the impacts. We've made up um, a decision to do it. Bonnie, thank Before you for your of these impacts. Bonnie, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. We are, of course, in a moment with uh, interest rates that have gone up significantly. We're in a high inflation environment as well. Over the last twenty-four hours, we've learned of a major Vancouver development company, which is seeking creditor protection. Uh, Cormandel Properties has a pretty big portfolio of unfinished uh, real estate projects in this city. They are seeking creditor protection. They say they have $700 million in outstanding debt. They have a pretty significant portfolio, 16 active real estate projects uh, reported this morning by the Vancouver Sun, all located within Vancouver. Uh, They have a lot of projects along the Canby Corridor, including uh, Oak Ridge. Now, their whole their whole portfolio, uh, some of it's obviously in the early stages of planning, others are is in the process of, of being built, some of it's social housing, some of it's rental, some of it's condominium. But in total, there's 2,000 units, significant amount uh, of units there. Uh, and former Vancouver City Council Raymond Louie is the Chief Operating Officer of Cormandel. So what does this mean? How does a company get into this type of trouble? I can simplify it and say, hey, it's high interest rates, uh, it's the environment that we're in, high debt load that they're carrying. But, you know, managing these companies, any development company, takes a lot of patience and, and a lot of work. Our next guest has a sense of what I'm talking about is Michael Geller. He's president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, he's a planner, planner and he's a real estate consultant as well. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Uh, walk me through this. Uh, how big of a deal is this in your mind in regards to Cormandil seeking creditor protection? Well, I think it is a big deal, Jazz. I heard you say to Chris Galis that hopefully this is a one-off. But I'll be surprised if it is a one-off, because I think there are a number of other companies that, like Coromandel, have grown quite quickly. As uh, you mentioned earlier, took on a lot of debt because interest rates were so low. It seemed a shame not to be borrowing money and going out and buying properties. And... uh, But eventually, uh, you reach a stage where if you don't get the approvals in time, and one of the reasons that uh, Coromandel has identified to the court that they're in this position is because a lot of their approvals have taken much longer than expected, combined with the higher interest rates. 
companies eventually, especially when they grow quickly, find themselves in this situation. And I must confess, I can relate to it because 40 years ago, mm-hmm. I was an employee of a company called NARAD. And some of your listeners will remember NARAD Developments, an established development and construction company. And we actually ended up going under. Now, at the time, interest rates on many of our loans were 22%, and it was just uh, impossible. The only other thing I'd say quickly is, well, I suspect some people are almost rejoicing when they read about a big developer going broke or getting into trouble, seeking court protection. The reality is a lot of very small people are going to get hurt by this. There's lots of uh, suppliers, architects, uh, construction workers, as you noted, potential buyers who are all going to be affected. And so that's why I think it is a big deal. Uh, We'll get to the issue of um, sometimes people scapegoating developers. Uh, But the issue of a company like this would have finance people, and and, and walk me through this. Uh, When you have a company this size, you're going to have projects in in sort of different stages. Some are an early stage where you're just planning the project, where you haven't even filed something with with the city. The city itself uh, will take time, even if you've entered, uh, you know, brought forward a project, there's a public engagement as well along the way. Walk me through what it's like managing companies of, of this sort in regards to the projects that are moving at different speeds and will be developed at different times as well. There's no doubt that companies make applications. And I mean, one of the ironies about this particular company, as was noted, uh, Raymond Louis, a long-time city councillor, well-respected uh, member of the Vancouver community, Um, chief operating officer of the company, you'd like to think that his presence in that company would have helped them get approvals from City Hall, you know, in a speedy way or certainly faster way. But unfortunately, I know that a lot of their applications have been held up. And partially, this is related to COVID. There's no doubt, and I've been looking at a number of pieces of correspondence where city staff have been apologizing to people seeking applications, saying because of COVID, uh, we're understaffed, we're not able to deal with your application as quickly. I think that has definitely been a factor as well in this case. But the nature of being a developer is you're generally optimistic. You always want to believe that uh, you are going to get that approval and the climate is going to improve and so forth. But in this particular company's case, it's really only been active for 10 years. And as you noted, to have 16 projects with 2,000 units is quite a significant portfolio. And I suspect there's some people listening to us saying part of their problem was they just grew too quickly. Yeah. Took on too much debt. Let, let's talk about the consumer for a second. I was uh, just reading the uh, Globe and Mail yesterday, and they have a real estate section there. And I'm always interested in, in what's sold, what hasn't sold, what, what they put it on the market. <laughs> I always find those kind of personal stories quite interesting. And I saw a couple of properties uh, yesterday in the Toronto market, mind you, uh, that uh, were purchased not too long ago, and they all sold under what the original owners purchased them for, either a year ago or three or four years ago. That, to me, speaks to, 
the tremendous amount of stress people are, certain uh, uh, certain folks are, whether it's their first time buying or maybe they're investors, but there seems to be, and maybe it's anecdotal at this point, but we are seeing more and more of these stories or certainly hearing that people are stressed. And, and are you getting a sense that we're going to see more bankruptcies this year, or people seeking creditor protection, or do you think Canadians generally will be able to weather through this the next four to six months? I don't want to pretend I have the full answer, but what I think you will see, or what we will see, is a lot of people who purchased pre-sale condominiums two, three years ago at prices that today are about 20% higher than what the units would be worth today. The other thing is the interest rates are much higher, and so when they go to try and get mortgages, to, to purchase those units to close as they're completed, they're going to have real difficulty. And I do expect quite a few investors to be in that situation. As we've heard, homeowners who took out exceptionally large mortgages and are now seeing uh, on a variable rate mortgage and seeing interest rates rising, and they're now the monthly payments aren't even covering the interest they're also going to suffer. But I think homeowners, generally speaking, will be in a better shape than all of these investors because homeowners will probably make other sacrifices before they lose their home. But there's no doubt that a lot of development companies um, have been so used to good times and indeed A lot of the people I meet in the development community, I mean, they weren't even born in 1983 when quite a significant number of Vancouver developers went under. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've never really known (laughs) this notion that values might go down. And uh, and so that's the problem. And I think you raise a very good point. And when we talk about the mom and pop investor, there are people who should never have become investors. What I mean by that, they've just seen gains in the last 10 or 15 years or so and think everything's going to go up all the time. And now you've hit this inflection point in history where uh, there is a fundamental correction and they're hurting. And uh, and I guess the argument at its core is that, as I said, some people should just never have become investors. But what happened is so many people were making so much money five years ago buying pre-sale condominium units and never actually expecting to have to buy them. And I don't know if you remember when you were at school or some of your listeners, well, we used to have chain letters in high school. And <laughs> you would give, you get a letter, I don't know if you know this concept, maybe it's an Ontario concept, but you know, you send somebody a bottle at the bottom of the list and you put your name on the list and over time you'll eventually get 35 bottles. <laughs> But the the idea was that, you know, you always hope that uh, it all worked out. That The problem with a lot of the investors buying pre-sale, they actually were buying them with the intention of never closing, but simply assigning their interest when it had gone up. And uh, that that was very much a part of the development community. And uh, last week, I think we chatted briefly about the fact that a lot of these projects were, in fact, designed and sold primarily to investors, because that was also part of the real estate scene here. Michael, thanks for your time today. Anytime. 
All right. Well, we talked a little bit about the impact of interest rates uh, on British Columbians dealing with uh, high debt loads. We've talked about uh, Cormandel, the um, the development company that yesterday, uh, it's but we learned that uh, it is seeking uh, creditor protection with over $700 million in debt. But that's at a higher level. That is a company. Let's talk about the other impact on people, and that's inflation, particularly food inflation and the challenge it's, it's had on residents and on students as well. Recently, the University of Victoria Student Society Society held a survey and found that 63% of students said they were experiencing food insecurity, meaning they struggled to afford enough food to eat. Joining us now is Wyatt Maddox. He's the Graduate Student Society Director of Services at the University of Victoria. Wyatt, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, were you surprised at such a high number that 63% of students that uh, responded to your survey uh, were experiencing food insecurity? I've got to say I'm not that surprised just based on everything that we've been hearing since September of this year that we've heard students crying out for any kind of help with food and rent. Uh, just campus is becoming a place where people feel like they can't get a meal. Uh, when you say they're struggling uh, even to, to, to find food, I mean, what kind of stories have you heard? Uh, well, we have our cafeteria and the stories that come out of there are that there's undercooked food, people getting sick, that the quality is just going down and that worse than all, uh, they're paying more and they're seeing that shrinkflation where they're getting smaller and smaller amounts of food while paying higher prices. There was one article I looked at that said that students were raiding dumpsters and bartering for meals. How real is that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, as a graduate student myself, I have shared in those dumpster meals a few times. Uh, I've gotten sick from dumpster meals on one or more occasions. And uh, beyond that, there's, you know, there's all sorts of other avenues that people are getting food that just isn't uh, effective food. We've gotten over overdue food from all sorts of sources, including charities. And I've handed out a backpack full of bread to my fellow colleagues before. Uh, you said you, you've done, you've gone dumpster diving yourself to find food? Yeah, well, I haven't actually gone in the dumpster myself, but I've been there when I've uh, had friends take the plunge. And it's just if, if because it's, it's food thrown out in restaurants and you're hoping to, to, to grab some uh, because it's still edible. And, and this is a regular thing now at UVic? Yeah, so uh, prior to the pandemic, we had a little culture that we called vulturing, in which you would go to a place where food is served in a cafeteria style, so sometimes on campus, sometimes a mall, and you would take food that people had left behind after they were done. But due to the pandemic, people are a little bit nervous now about that close proximity, and uh, dumpster diving has really taken that place. And students are now doing this for, for a basics, is for food. Yes, yeah, it's things like bread. Um, I know that there's quite a few uh, grocery stores that are in proximity to campus that are local favorites. You go in there, get anything that's expired really recently, and that can make up your food for a week. And they're bartering for meals as well? Yeah, absolutely. I know people who are living in cars part-time and you know using food to be able to sleep on people's couches. Uh, is there a food bank on campus? 
There is. There's the UBSS, so that's the Undergraduate Student Society Food Bank. Uh, it is entirely run and funded by students, and unfortunately, it's in a huge deficit because of the massive inflation that's going on. And uh, we've heard from UVic that they're just not interested in supporting that food bank. It's, uh, so, so is it going to be? Sh- is it shut down or going to be shut down? So far, we've been propping it up from extra fees that we've got sitting around. Uh, so any space in the budgets of the Graduate Student Society or the Undergraduate Student Society, we've basically been throwing any extra cash we have at it to try and keep it afloat. People listening to this are going to be incredibly shocked when you talk about um, people, uh, as you say, vulturing, raiding uh, dumpsters, bartering for meals. I mean, these are students, these are uh, undergraduates or graduates. Uh, this is our present and our future of, of this society. What, what, what would be helpful here? Is, is there a place where people can make a donation? What would you like to see done in, in the near term to, to help these students? Well, I think a huge part of it comes down to the monopoly that UVic has on campus with food. Uh, they just don't have the the big size corporation in order to make affordable food available on campus. And then they also keep the franchises out. So a lot of people would like to see things like a Ch- Tim Hortons on campus, uh, a grocery store that's less than a 10 minute bus ride in either direction. And, uh, more than anything, uh, I think we'd like to see a lot of the wages and stipends on campus go up. So right now, they're some of the lowest in the country, and we're seeing people with below than below 64% uh, of a, a living wage is what most grad students are making. Wow. Well, Wyatt, I really appreciate you making time for us today uh, and sharing your story. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, well, let's focus on that Chinese spy balloon. Today, the U.S. government says that the spy balloon that was shot down by the U.S. was equipped to detect and collect intelligence signals as part of a huge military-linked aerial surveillance program that targeted not just the United States, but more than 40 countries, uh, including Canada. They were citing imagery uh, that they were able to detect from an American U-2 spy plane. Um, And they said that the Chinese government has a fleet of balloons operating under the direction of the People's Liberation Army. And those balloons are specifically used for spying and that it's outfitted with high-tech equipment designed to gather sensitive information from various targets uh, around the globe. Joining me now is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, Today's news out of Washington, the fact that uh, uh, the U.S. says that the the spy balloon was equipped to detect and collect intelligence signals. Uh, Where are we in regards to the U.S.'s response now? Well, I mean, look, the response uh, is uh, a little bit split. The administration is hitting back heavily against uh, Beijing uh, for what they see is uh, a direct violation uh, of the sovereignty of American airspace with this balloon that crossed over land for eight days. And as you say, and as defense officials now say, was designed to collect communications. Uh, And, you know, it's still unclear whether it was picking up radar signals, whether it was picking up any kind of communication. Uh, 
this is something that defense officials are going to be looking at as they comb through the pieces of the balloon that have been collected from the surface of the Atlantic. What they do not have information yet is uh, on the payload, that kind of big satellite-looking piece, uh, which is still below the surface of the water. So the administration is hitting back. On Capitol Hill, there was a bit of a back and forth. There are some Democrats saying, look, we need to get answers from China, but you have some Republicans saying, look, we need to get answers from the Biden administration. Uh, you, the U.S. isn't the only country that China has been spying on either, uh, as well, right? And based on the information that we're hearing today, we're talking about potentially 40 countries, they were saying? Yeah. Dozens and dozens of countries that have potentially uh, had some form of their, you know, national security information or what have you uh, collected and obtained by these balloons. And, you know, we have to remember that the the um, the regime in China still says that this is a, you know, uh, man-made, you know, weather surveillance airship that had to do with climatology and, and meteorology, although that's, you know, now very clearly widely pushed back on by most governments. Uh, this is something that is of concern. We saw the pictures of one of these balloons floating uh, over various regions across Central and South America in recent days. So there are ongoing questions here as to what precisely China is trying to do. Look, this is a country that has the, the abilities, the capabilities to collect incredible amounts of information from satellites that are hovering above the Earth. What these balloons are doing, what the intent of these balloons are, uh, that is what defense officials are trying to figure out. And just to confirm, uh, the U.S. had said this is not the first time this has happened. This has been going on for quite a period of time. And this is where some of that hypocrisy uh, comes from, at least when we are talking about Republicans, because they are putting the blame on the Biden administration for not being strong enough on China. But uh, Pentagon officials have come out to say that, look, during the Trump administration, there were a number of instances, I believe it was three, where these balloons were at some point in some area over American airspace, uh, or at least in American airspace. Now, they say that they did not linger as long as they did this time around. It's also worth uh, pointing out that this balloon hovered for a very long time over Montana, which is the site of uh, a number of nuclear facilities for the U.S. government. Uh, but this has happened before. Republicans kind of not paying attention to that, the former president not paying attention to that. But defense officials and national security officials are because it is unsettling uh, for these officials to try and determine what information Beijing may have been able to access. In regards to the China, China-U.S. relations, uh, even China relations with the West, uh, we were in the early stages of a potential reset uh, b- before uh, this balloon was discovered. What happens now? Is this going to be a bit of a detente now where nothing is really done, uh, accusations are made, but they don't talk? Or do you think we're going to get to a period where they start talking again very soon? Well, I mean, look, Beijing didn't even take a call from uh, from defense officials last weekend when they were looking for information on this. And Beijing is uh, pushing back heavily against the administration shooting this down, saying that the balloon itself belongs to China uh, and the U.S. has no business uh, in handling it. So this further strains what has already been an incredibly distant relationship, but it also follows uh, on the doorstep of the move by the United States last week to announce that it and the Philippines were going to be uh, providing more accommodations to U.S. military uh, troops on uh, islands in and around the Philippines, again, 
pushing back on kind of Chinese aggression, but also angering Beijing, who sees this as a provocation. So if there was any kind of attempt here to potentially rebuild uh, a kind of a floundering political relationship, uh, this has thrown another hurdle in the way. Uh, I was reading that the U.S. was calling various countries uh, just to update them on, on this investigation. I'm going to assume Canada was part of that because the balloon... Uh, according to initial reports, did travel over Canada for a short period as well. Sure. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's one can you know imagine that U.S. information or at least uh, intelligence and national security phone calls aren't oftentimes going to be put out there in verbate. But it would not be surprising to hear that Pentagon officials or administration officials were in touch with Ottawa because, uh, as our own Mercedes Stevenson had uh, first reported, that this balloon was over uh, Canadian airspace and for a time potentially could have been collecting some form uh, of information. So obviously there will be a back and forth between uh, Washington and Ottawa to try and get uh, any information along with any other country. There are also going to be significant concerns here for could there be another balloon in the works? Could there be something else that potentially goes higher than where this balloon uh, already was? There are a lot of unanswered questions for the myriad of unanswered questions that already exist. Reggie, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. Well, after 18 years in the legislature, including five years as premier, John Horgan said he's moving on from his career in politics. Uh, This afternoon, Mr. Horgan took to the floor of uh, the chamber to make his final statement as an MLA. Take a listen. I have tried uh, over 18 years in this place as an MLA, 30 years working here, 63 years drawing breath to try and make it better every day for the people around me. And I want to thank you all for allowing me to to say today how important that has been for me, for my family, and for my community. I loved every minute of it, and I can't say any more than that inside the house. But uh, thanks for everything, all of you. And I know there's people I didn't mention. I've got all these notes. I worked so hard on them, (laughs) meticulously. Uh, I'm I'm fastidious for staying to paper. Adria, the the health minister knows this. We've been friends since 1986, and there's not a word that's passed my lips that I haven't written down and (laughs) passed on to someone else. So uh, with with that, uh, I will just tantalize you with the water story. It's really funny, uh, but I'm not going to tell it. Uh, They were taking, now they're shaking their head, do not do the water story. Okay. So thanks, everybody. If you want the water story, it'll probably be on YouTube sometime in the future. Uh, That was Mr. Horgan uh, speaking earlier today, and I actually was in our office here and uh, listened to the entire uh, speech today. It was thoughtful, it was emotional, uh, and I certainly enjoyed uh, hearing him speak. He is a great orator, and uh, and I've always been incredibly impressed. He's always fought for things that he's believed in and uh, passionately. And uh, I've uh, felt very blessed also to be in the legislature with him uh, as well. Joining us now is former Premier John Horgan. John, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be with you, Jazz. Good to hear your voice, man. Uh, what was it like for you in that uh, in the chamber today? Uh, it, you know, I we've just played a brief a brief uh, soundbite there of you. What was it like for you? What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Well, it's been a whirlwind, quite frankly, the past. Uh, six years of my life have flown by with all of the issues that we've faced collectively as a community, uh, as a province, as a country, uh, and being in the middle of all of that. So I've had over the past few months an opportunity to sit back and reflect. And 
And uh, it's so important. I know people listening, uh, we're all getting on with our lives, but uh, I'm 63. I've had cancer twice. Uh, My wife just broke her leg, uh, which was great. And it's weird to say that. But uh, three days after I left the premier's office, uh, Ellie uh, was confined to to a chair for, for weeks. And so I was getting the groceries. I was doing the laundry. I was doing all of the things that I hadn't done all of the normal human mm-hmm. uh, activities. And, and it was so fantastic to decompress, to just be normal again, to be in my community uh, where I, I care deeply about the people and the place. Uh, it's been fantastic. So that, that I'm excited about. And then to, to leave the legislature today after being there so long, I, I, for those who don't know, I used to work there before I got elected. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel very strongly about public service. Uh, uh, and I'm not, uh, I, I'm a partisan, no question about that. But I also uh, know that if you, your mind always expands when you in, uh, introduce another idea and it will never go back to the way it was. So whether I hear from liberals, conservatives, greens, if you want to put them in a partisan box, I don't really care. I just want to hear new ideas about how we can collaborate for success. And, and so being in the legislature where I've tried most recently to collaborate, knowing that I was also in there when you were on the other side, uh, or, or Jazz, and yelling and screaming at you. So I know, I know the back and forth of it all, the theater of it all, and I love that. But lately, in, in dealing with uh, health issues, dealing with these extraordinary challenges for our community, I've just come to the place where, you know, the younger generation's ready to go. I'm in the way. Uh, I, I'll go do something else, and I wish them all the best. And that, that's how I felt as I nodded at the speaker and walked out of the place. I, I do. You're not retiring, though, right? I mean, you're hoping to be doing other work? Oh, that, yeah. meaningful work? Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I, uh, uh, I'd like to do some comedy. I'd like to uh, do some writing. I'd like to do uh, whatever can usefully move the human condition. I I'm not done. I'm just done with uh, being an elected representative. Uh, I, I, I don't, there's no more for me to do in that regard. And so uh, I don't want, I, I think it's time for new, new leadership in my community. And I know people will put their hands up and, and uh, someone will be chosen to have the honor of sitting in the legislature. Uh, and that honor comes from your neighbors. It comes from uh, the people around you. And, and you know this uh, from your own experience, Chaz. You can observe politics as you did for a career, mm-hmm. uh, but then when you're actually in it, it is a whole different ball of wax. <laughs> you're dealing with human beings uh, uh, in the political realm, but also in the community realm. And, and it just, uh, it's such a privilege and such an honor. I, I can't say that enough. And I know there'll be listeners who go, oh, what a pile of crap. You know, all these politicians are the same. They're not. Uh, you know that. Uh, yeah. You talk to different people every day. All of us get up every morning grateful to be here and hopeful that at the end of the day we've made a difference. And, and I, I'm going to continue doing that, just not at the legislature. I, I listen to people uh, call this show, and only time I get discouraged, it's not any particular time, whether it's politicians or, or individuals, we are in the midst of this thing called populism. And I, I, I don't get depressed about it. I do get concerned about it. Um, can you speak a little bit about just yourself as a leader and having to deal with, because you were premier during this populist era, Perhaps you saw more of it in, in Europe or America, or but 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 it's it's here in BC as well. Can you speak a little bit about just the challenges you faced to, to be either a new Democrat, but I also view you as a pretty strong centrist as well, John. And can you speak to me a little bit about just the challenges of bleeding in an era where populism is is so strong? 
It is it is really difficult. Uh, populism on the left and the right, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. we oftentimes assume that the, the Trumpian approach and this uh, this right of center maniacal approach, which very deep troubles me deeply. That the, the United States uh, that beacon uh, to the world of democracy and the people having uh, the last word. It, what they're doing now just terrifies me. And when that is migrating to Canada, I'm very very concerned. Because I know at the end of the day, most people, uh, they don't think about left and right. They think about what, what are my family needs right now? What can, well, I need to get this bridge built or this road fixed. I want to make sure there's uh, appropriate resources for my kids in school. Where am I going to find daycare? I've got a hip replacement that's now into month 12 of waiting to get on, uh, on a table. These are the things people think about. They don't think about all the other BS we see on Twitter and and uh, in social media where the tribes start yelling and screaming at each other. Uh, I, I want to mention Aaron O'Toole, Jazz, because mm-hmm. Aaron, I would never vote for Aaron O'Toole. I told him that. But I very much respect Aaron O'Toole and a conservative thinker who said, I'm just like you, left-wing people. Uh, I have kids. I have parents. I have siblings. And I care deeply about them and my community. All of this other nonsense that we concoct to divide ourselves is just pathetic. And I encouraged Aaron O'Toole to stay on, stay on as conservative leaders so that Canadians can think about different perspectives without it being about populism, without it being about uh, creating hate against your opponents. And, and uh, he wasn't able to survive. And I, I think that we're lesser for that. Uh, and, and that's not an indictment of Mr. Polyev. It's just that here was a centrist, a normal guy who gave it a shot and was chucked off the boat like before they even got close to coming back to shore again. And, and I think that that recycling leadership does not allow community to really engage in these issues. And we need everyone on board if we're going to deal with climate change. We need everyone on board if we're going to find what what is public health care look like uh, five years from now. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not partisan. It's not ideological. It's it's urgent pressing uh, policy choices that we can debate about, but we all have to say at the end of it all, okay, we've made a decision and this is where we're going. And I don't see enough of that, quite frankly, and that, that troubles me. Uh, my final question to you, you're talking about uh, your wife, Ellie, and, and her injury and you having mm-hmm. to do the laundry and do the grocery shop. And, and, you know, as a premier, you're always, you've got so much pressure on your shoulder. You've various ministers and ministries, big issues, got to look at nationally and provincially. Uh, what's it feel like to go grocery shopping again? Oh, it was great. It was fantastic. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, the, the irony of all of this, Jazz, is that my wife broke her, her right foot uh-huh. weeks after I became premier, like literally uh, two weeks after I became premier. And at that time, there was a, just a cavalcade of casseroles and people coming to help because they knew I was busier than I've ever been in my life and we needed help. But this time, five years later, it happens the other foot <laughs> to bookend this period and it's like, well, he's okay. They, he can, they, no casseroles came. Well, a couple of casseroles, but not, <laughs> not every night a new cook from somewhere in, in the community. And so it was great. And, and this, I mentioned uh, icing sugar. I, 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 that was completely out of the blue. Another one of these organisms. What the hell is he talking about? I met someone at the grocery store, and, and she said, well, I'm sad you're retiring. I said, well, I'm staying on as MLA for a period of time. Uh, to, to see if I can help with issues. And she said, can you help me find some icing sugar? I've been to four stores and I can't find any. And, and I just, a big grin came on my face and I said, those are the issues that people are concerned about. I mean, I'm trivializing massive challenges, poverty, inequality, 
you know, the, the opioid crisis, climate change, all of these issues are massive. But, but they don't get any better when you yell at people. They only get better when you sit down and try and figure out how do we figure this out. It, yeah. Whether it's icing trigger, whether it's old growth logging, whether it's it's uh, uh, emission GHG emissions, all those things require not yelling; they require collaboration and a, and a path forward. And I, I hope we see more of that in all of our interactions, not just our politics, but as human beings. How do how do we uh, agree to disagree without being uh, brutal about it? Yeah. Last, uh, I'm I'm taking up your time. Sorry. No worries. Sorry. No, no, not at all. I was all. going to tell another another story about a guy I never voted for, Keith Martin. Uh-huh. He was my member of parliament for yes. like almost 20 years. Yes. And, and I went to, when he st- stepped down, I went to his, uh, his office to wish him well and thank him. And one of the media that was there saying, well, why are you here? And I said, I've never voted for Keith. I probably wouldn't in the future, but I was always comfortable that he was going to do the best he could to reflect the diversity of the community. And he did. Yeah. And, and I think that people need to look at their elected representatives as human beings, not as automatons not as people who are just detached from community, but in fact are part of the community and want the same things that everybody wants. Well, John, I, I really hope, uh, I know you're not retiring, but I want to have you on the show once in a while with your uh, experience as an elected official, uh, as a premier. Uh, you know, Glenn Clark was on just uh, recently as well. We'd love to have you on occasionally come on whenever you're in the mood and we can talk about big picture issues or we could talk about the price of lettuce if you want as well. But look forward to having you on, my friend. Thank you so uh, much. Well, uh, it's a delight, uh, Giles. Thanks for having me on, luck with this as you go forward and if i find a solution to the icing sugar problem i'll give you a ring and we can get that out for people <laughs> all right thanks so much see all the man. best to you all right see you bye Welcome back to the show. Well, the BC Government Lawyers Association advocates for civil lawyers. They're the lawyers who represent the provincial government in court. Uh, they provide legal advice and they draft provincial legislation. The debates you see politicians make whenever something becomes law, that legislation is very important. So they play a very important role, not just in government, but in our democracy as well. Now, the BC Government Lawyers want their own union or, or bargaining unit, but the government, the provincial government, doesn't want that for their own lawyers, although there are government lawyers across the country that have their own unions. Joining me now to talk about uh, this situation is Gareth Morley, president of the BC Government Lawyers Association. Mr. Morley, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jazz. I'm glad for, that you invited me. Oh, absolutely. Look forward to chatting with you on this issue because I think it's very important. Uh, first and foremost, why do uh, the BC Government Lawyers Association want to form a union? Well, Jazz, we've had an association that represents... Uh, the civil lawyers you're describing for 30 years. And we, for 20 years, we did that as a voluntary organization that uh, didn't have any right to collectively bargain, but we worked with government to make life better for our members and, and to make it a better workplace. 10 years ago, we decided that we should be a union and have the same kind of rights as the, as other unions. And, the Crown Council had already done that, and we've been we've been fighting for ten years to get that. And today, the government introduced legislation, Bill Five, mm-hmm. that would have the effect of forcing us into a completely different union that none of our members ever voted for or ever signed a card. Uh, and which has never sought to represent us. This is an NDP government. Uh, they're tightly knit with uh, public sector unions. Uh, they're, of course, as you said, a Crown Council's union. What is it specifically that this particular government doesn't like about 
your your association, your members wanting to unionize? You know, you have to ask them. <laughs> um, we, the the government said in when when the minister introduced Bill Five, mm-hmm. what she said was she said it was implementing collective bargaining rights for government lawyers, but nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is that we currently we've existed as an as an organization for 30 years we're right now in front of the bc labor relations board seeking certification and the government comes into the middle of that and brings in legislation to say you can't exist as an organization anymore and you're going to be in a different union that we picked how successful do you think you'll be in regards to at the at the lrb level and uh, first and foremost, and is there any way you can change the mind of the government with, with this bill? I mean, it's there before the legislature, as you said, it's introduced today. They're clearly moving forward with this. Uh, can what happens at the LRB change anything? Well, this bill will effectively make what is currently before the LRB pointless. Mm. Um, that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to say that uh, we're not going to listen to what an independent tribunal decides about whether this group gets to have a union, we're going to intervene in that and force them into the union that we pick. Now, you know, we're going to do everything we can within the law to fight that. And if that means taking this bill to court, we'll, we'll definitely consider that. And if it means job action, we'll consider that. What is it that you think you will be able to achieve as a member of this new union, which you wish to be a part of, that you think you can't achieve right now? Well, one big thing that exists right now is that we um, are, we have no guarantee against being dismissed without cause. And that's obviously important to all workers in terms of job security. But there's a particular thing for government lawyers that um, we, our job is basically to tell the government whether it's, acting within the law and it may want to do something and we may have to tell them that that's not constitutional or the statute doesn't allow it or it affects people's rights or they have to consult with a first nation. And so we need to know that whatever we say and whether they like it or not, we're not going to be fired because of what we say. I mean, we could be fired because we don't do a good job, but we can't be fired because of what we say. And right now, that's not the case for us. Uh, uh, Bill 5 will be debated. Uh, it will be pushed through with an NDP majority, I assume. It will receive royal assent. Uh, if that happens, is there any recourse beyond a change of government? Well, we may um, – we'll have to talk to our lawyers. Uh, we have uh, – Goldblatt Partners, who represented the workers who fought back against the Ford government when it brought in the notwithstanding clause. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's too soon to say what we would do, but we would certainly consider a constitutional challenge and will consider job action within the law. Uh, Mr. Morley, look forward to chatting with you soon. Uh, Thank you for your time today. Thanks very much, Jess. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.